Welcome to the show. You're listening to the Hope Radio Podcast. Stories, interviews, profiles of courage, triumph, and perseverance. My name is Sean Davis. I happen to be your humble host. And joining me, as always, my partner in life, my beautiful wife. Just Jen. Just Jen. And uh, you're along with us today as we talk about hope, talk about encouragement. And Jen, I've got to share. I'm excited. Are you excited? I'm excited. We have a um, very special guest coming on, Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn. Yeah. Have you heard of her? I have actually heard of her from a fellow friend of ours that wanted me to listen to her story, her podcast. Jeff Holden. Yes, Mr. Jeff Holden was like, Jen, you need to listen to this lady, so... And I believe he said with the same emphasis, I needed to do the same. And mm-hmm. uh, her story is is incredible. Yeah. Back in 1990, she actually physically, clinically died, was yes. gone for 22 minutes. That is just something I can't even wrap around my brain. 22 minutes. Thankfully... Some physicians were there. Mm-hmm. It was at a pool event. Some yes. physicians were there and were able to do CPR, and they did CPR on her for 22 minutes until she was resuscitated. That's a very long time. Yeah. I and mean, people don't normally come back from that. 22 minutes. Like, what do you ride a bull for eight seconds? This is 22 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> I, I never thought to connect the two events, but thank you for sharing. That's just my brain. That's just how your brain works, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a I long think time. It is a long time. But her story is not that event. She's not defined by that event. No. But her story is one of triumph mm-hmm. and perseverance and overcoming and then being of service to others. She has done an incredible amount of research on trauma, specifically the stages of recovery for post-traumatic stress. And she's created a process, a outline of the steps to post-traumatic yeah. growth. I love that. Post-traumatic growth. Six steps. And so we're going to talk to her today about what happened to her, Mm -hmm. how she overcame that, and then what she's doing today to be of service to others and benefit others that have uh, gone through similar experiences with with trauma and stress and and significant life Mm -hmm. events. It's fascinating. This whole story is fascinating. Are you excited? I'm super excited. Shall we give her a call? Let's do it. Let's give her a call and get her online. Well, I've got uh, Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn on the line. And I got to tell you, Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn, I am so excited to talk with you. I listened to your story. I was riveted listening to your story. And I think others will be too. So uh, welcome to our show. Oh, I'm so proud and pleased to be here. So thanks for inviting me. Uh, you're welcome. And I think maybe a good place for us to begin, for those that do not know you, you're the founder of Metahab.com, and you really talk about post-traumatic growth. But before we get into all of the meat and potatoes of that, I would just like to begin at the event that led to your discovery of other talents and abilities that you had, but just talk about what happened back in 1990 for you and walk us through that day. And I I think that's a great place to begin. Yes, I'm happy to talk about that. So it was a while ago, but in short, my husband and I have three children. I don't know if some of your listeners have children that belong to a swim team, but our children belong to a swim team, Rio Del Oro at the time. Our youngest was almost two. Of course, he wasn't swimming. Our other daughters were. 
seven and eight, and they were on the swim team. I have no memory of any of this. I have retrograde amnesia, so I just am kind of going off of what people told me. I, there's about there's easily a month of my life I I don't have any memory of. But we were at the championship swim meet at Jesuit High School. They had before the this was on a Sunday before the children were doing their final swim. They announced we're having a fun adult relay. Well, I'm super competitive. I've done a lot of marathoning, triathloning. I'm very athletic. And apparently I grabbed my husband and a couple of friends and said, come on, we're going to swim this and we're going to win this. And I'm going to swim the last lap of the relay because I'm the fastest and because you know, I've been training a lot for triathlons. So at the pool, we swam the relay. I did swim the fourth lap, the final leg of the relay. And apparently the timer said to me, do you need help out? And I said, no, I'm fine. And I just uh, proceeded to, um, something happened to me, and I went to the bottom of the pool, 13 feet. And my husband, they realized I wasn't coming back up. So my husband dove in, got me to the side of the pool. Luckily, since there were a lot of parents there, there were some of them were doctors and Bruce Gordon and Stuart Sweeney and Gary Ryle are some of the doctors who gave me 22 minutes of CPR at poolside. 22 minutes of CPR, really? Wow. I, when I, you know, in retrospect, I remembered seeing Gary Ryle, one of the doctors who resuscitated me, and I asked him, this is like months later, I said, Gary, how long did you go? How long did you do CPR? And he just looked at me with this incredibly mm. straight face and said, 22 minutes. Wow. And I was just taken back. I was like, because I am a nurse practitioner, but prior to being a nurse practitioner, I was a nurse in a medical intensive care and did quite a few resuscitations with a team. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I was just like dumbfounded. But it was 22 minutes. They landed the helicopter in the football field at Jesuit. Life flighted me to UC Davis. Apparently, my heart stopped again. They got it going, and that's when at UC Davis, I was on a respirator in ICU for a while and transferred to Sutter Memorial. And they're just like, like I said, a month of my life. I don't remember any of that. So effectively, you shared with me that statistically speaking, from a medical perspective, you died. Oh, yeah, I, I was, that they, uh, Stuart Drini said that they had noted that I had my, I wasn't breathing and my heart had stopped. And so that's when they started the CPR. Wow. And, so, and, and I've heard you say that many, many people have come back and said to you that, like, you're a walking miracle because most people do not survive CPR for 22 minutes. At what point does somebody give up? Like, that's just unheard of, relatively speaking, to survive that. Well, not only, I think to me, and that it always like almost gets me emotional about this because when I really think about it, it's not only that a lot of people don't survive, but it's also that the traumatic brain injury that yes. occurs from the extended necessity of the CPR to be able to come back and actually regain cognitive, emotional, intellectual skills, that that to me is always, and I think it does baffle 
a lot of, you know, physicians and everything when I talk about that. Because it wasn't until after my event that I went, I was already a nurse. I had a bachelor's in nursing. I was a nurse practitioner. But it wasn't until after that, two years later, that I went back and earned a master's degree and then a few years later went back and earned a doctoral degree. So to be able to come back to me in that realm is, I feel most blessed. So that's the big thing. But I will tell you the thing that actually got me going in the trajectory that I have been in in terms of, I'll talk about that I have in post-traumatic growth is, I do remember when I was coming back, and I remember specifically being in the hospital and asking doctors, well, when will I run again? Mm-mm, you're never going to run again. You you walk, but you won't run again. And I said, well, when will I be able to swim again? Oh, no, won't do that. And every time I would ask about something, I was always told, nah, you're, not, you're probably not going to do that. And there was just a lot of negativity. And I remember at one point walking up to this doctor and saying, you need to stop doing that. I am well aware that I am messed up. But you need to tell me what I can do. You need to ask me what I want to do. And your job is to help me get there. And I also I said, and I don't care where people are at. Please stop taking hope away. You're taking my hope away. Like I will have a hope of a life. And I think that to me is really one of the worst things you could do for people. Now, there are some things that is foolish hope, but there you have to inspire people. You have to believe, hey, we don't know where you're going to go, but you're going to have a future. We don't know what it's going to look like. We'll work together, but you'll have a future. But this notion of the negativity and kind of, not kind of, of moving away from a hopeful future, I think that's one of the worst things you can do to somebody. That is what got me mad. Yeah. And that anger at first is what drove me to, no, I don't want to do this anymore. We got to do, we got to do something. <laughs> I remember listening to your story and I'm glad that you expanded on that particular point because like in the last couple of years, I personally have really grown to understand how powerful words are, you know, how much power can come from them, both positive or negative. Words can uplift people. Words can give them hope, but words can also destroy people. And when when I listened to your story and you talked briefly about that conversation that you'd had with that doctor, like something in my spirit got riled up too. I'm like, why do why would they say that to people? Like there's a there's another way to say it. You can say that, yeah, this is going to be challenging, but we've seen people do X. You know, this is going to be challenging. It's going to take a lot of work. But if you're committed to it, you know, especially in in human behavior in faith in in belief in power like like if you internalize that you're going to be better then i think that you have far greater chances of becoming better but like if you are resigned to the fact that someone's telling you you're never going to swim again you're never going to walk again or or you're never going to run again like you're right that takes away hope and that's and words are powerful and and i think people need to be you know, cautious in situations like that as to how they speak to somebody that's trying to come out of some sort of trauma. I'm a nurse practitioner. I'm in that community, and I've talked a lot to physicians about that, and I know that 
there's an anxiety around them that they don't want to give you this false hope or they don't want to set you up. And, and, I, and, I, and I get that. And so I don't want to dismiss the importance and how awesome physicians are. Yeah. But I do like to talk about maybe, as you say, structuring and using some words and some themes around that so that you build this hope. And also when you build hope, you give people places to go. You have them start to gain some traction. You have them start going in certain ways. And luckily, you know, I did uh, get a cardiologist who is a runner, and that's Dan Van Hammersfield was my cardiologist. And what he said is, okay, let's start here. And he sent me to cardiac rehab. And that was, I was 35 years old, so I was clearly the youngest person at cardiac rehab. But that actually got me some traction and gave me something to do. Because if you're looking at even the definition of hope, it is this feeling, this expectation, this desire for things to happen. Well, that's a process. And so to start things happening put me on this trajectory of I can influence, I can trust, I can influence my outcome, and that gave me hope. The other thing that, too, is so fundamentally important with regard to hope is giving people control. You're going through stuff that I would, everything was so out of control for me. Everything was so out of control, especially in a hospital. Everything's super controlled for you, and you have very limited to no control. Somebody sitting with me and giving me an idea and a place to go instilled some control in me, and that also gained my traction and my hope that I will have a future. I don't know what that future is actually going to look like, but I do have a hope for a future that I will start to come back to, and that is key. That's powerful, and I love that. I think that's very well said. And so a couple different things that I didn't understand or know based on what I know of your story is – you don't remember a lot about the actual accident, and I, I think you probably have been asked this before, but I haven't heard your answer. Did you did you feel in that time, do you remember feeling the presence of God? Do you remember seeing anything that was indicative of heaven, you know, bright light, the afterlife, anything like that? Um, no, and uh, people kid me. I have some friends say, oh, well, do tell people you did because they all know you died. But I said, no, and I, I didn't. I don't sense anything like that. And there's a couple of things. Number one, since I've been working on the work I do now in terms of my research and clinical application of this research, I really come to realize I'm glad I didn't have that because I think that it, that would have put me in a different place. You know, that would have taken my attention off. That could have adjusted my attention to what I'm doing now. So I've, you know, I don't remember bright light. I don't remember anything like that. The second thing is, is that there have been times since my accident, though, that, you know, in prayer or um, in running, because I have gone back to running, or at least jogging, and there's a, that's a very spiritual, prayerful time for me, that I have had 
incidences where I just, certain thoughts I've had or certain insights I've had, I just, you know, I really pulled back to, I think that's the result of what I went through. But no, I don't, I don't have any fantastic story about it. <laughs> you know, people are always curious and I, and I know that if it was me, I, I would be curious too, but yeah. maybe you can walk us through the first couple of years of you know, kind of regaining control of your life, relearning certain aspects of it. I mean, I loved the story when you kind of came to in the hospital and you had some family members there and, you know, you, you do have a favorite meal and you were trying to describe to them what you wanted to eat. And the way you described it was, was, you know, awesome to me, but I like, I get, I get it. But like, how do you go from that to, you know, becoming now a doctor and the, the transition? So really quickly, the story that uh, you're referring to is that very first awareness I had was, uh, this was like, after I'd been off of a respirator at ICU and in a step-down unit or whatever, I just remember sitting up in bed. And I saw at the end of the bed was my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law. And I looked at them and I said, where am I? And they said, you're in the hospital. And I said, well, why am I here? And they told me, and I was like, yeah, no, that does, I don't believe it. They said, well, can we get you something? And I said, yes. So my favorite meal is a a cheeseburger, french fries, and vanilla shake. And I said, yes, get me um, one of those things that, you know, it has yellow stuff on it, and you can drive through places and get it. It comes with these long things with salt on them, and I want a cup of this cold, white stuff you put a straw in, and I could talk about but I couldn't say the word. And that's really where I started. And when I, I didn't, when they, even when at first they brought my children in and I didn't recognize my husband right away, I knew I was affiliated to them, but I didn't know how. And when I came home and stood in my kitchen, I asked my children, you know, where are the dishes and what did I do? So I was, uh, I was in bad shape. And so what I did over time is I got pretty depressed (laughs) and I got pretty upset and I, you know, kind of, and I tell people all the time now, I expect you to go through that because this is your life has completely upended and you have to go through that. And then what happened to me over time was I had this epiphany. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. But gosh darn it, I'm going to do this. And what I, when you make that choice, and it's actually one of the stages in MetaHab is stage two, the turning point, you make that choice. You start to recognize the humility. You have a humbleness around you. And you recognize there's no way I'm going to get through this without asking for and accepting help. There's just no way. And I was so... I can do this. I got this. Well, this was way bigger than anything I'd ever dealt with. And when I finally said, all right, I have to ask for and accept help, and I did that in earnest, and I went to a speech therapist, not because I couldn't talk, but because I had aphasia and I couldn't capture words, and my cognition was off, and I did go to cardiac rehab, and I did see a therapist about that. And so I started doing that. And in the process of doing it again, I gained some traction. Things didn't get better overnight, but I started seeing things 
getting better. And I had some hope and I recognized this is what you can do to keep moving yourself forward. And then I also surrounded myself with people who were positive and optimistic. And again, not foolish optimism, but optimistic, like, yeah, you got this, you know, you can do this. And I would, you know, if they had suggestions, I would take their suggestions. I would do kind of what I was told for a while because I knew some people had my back. And if they said, do this, kind of you just go, okay, I'll do that. And things just started getting better. Say, um, it was about, and people ask me all the time, what is the time frame? And from my own experience and from hundreds of people that I've interviewed, I would say it's about 18 to 24 months before you really kind of look at it and go, yeah, I feel like I kind of got life again. And it's not the same as what I left. It's different. But I just feel like I have some control and I'm kind of on top of things again. Yeah, you, you had to have that, when you call traction, I'll state it differently and say, you, like, you had to have those incremental successes, those wins, those small victories, and one right after another. Next thing you know, you kind of look back after a period of weeks or maybe a month or whatever, and wow, I have accomplished something. So you started to feel like your progress was back in your ability to control it. You know, like there was, there, the, that's what you mean by traction. You said it very well. You know, it is really that 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 self the belief in myself. Okay, I got. I can believe. I believe in myself. I believe in what I'm doing. I'm good. I've got like those you said those small increments of improvement. And being around people also who helped you identify those people would say, "Hey, I got to tell you, you look, I'm great. Wow, there's just you know." I remember one of the doctors one time I was over at his house and he said, let me see you write your name. He was one of the, he was Stuart Carini, one of the doctors who resuscitated me and I wrote my name. He goes, okay, that's good. That's good. You got some ways to go, but that's good. So I mean, those types of feedback too were very helpful. What was the biggest Achilles heel for you? What was the most challenging part of your recovery? The thing that gave you the most resistance? Fear. Fear. Fear and, fear and anger. Like, especially anger, like, excuse me, why did this happen to me? Because I did everything right. Married, I had kids, I've done this, I've done that. I've done it all right. And this is not supposed to happen to somebody like me. And so I was kind of angry about that. And then also just the fear of, is this, am I ever going to get any of this back? Like, my life, am I ever going to get that back? And I think overcoming that aspect is one of the people I interviewed from my book, Dominic Cook said, you had a spinal cord injury. He said, I always used to ask, why? Why would this happen to me? This isn't supposed to happen to me until you realize, well, why isn't it supposed to happen to me? Why is it supposed to happen to <laughs> yeah. me? Why does somebody else deserve it more than you? Why why wouldn't it be you? And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I remember you saying something about you being in the best shape of your life at the time that the accident happened. Like you you physically you were were extremely fit. And I heard you say that's probably the reason why you survived it. And to then now see what has been created from that event, I can see now why it happened to you. Well, I do feel like 
and it sounds kind of crazy, but from a clinical behavioral science researcher, I'm into that, but I also really feel in many ways this is like a ministry for me because I really work very hard, not only for myself, but for clinicians and other people to help them shift a little bit that mindset to take on the notion that these challenges and struggles can be profound opportunities, not overnight, but over time, for unbelievable recognition of your strength, your resilience, your grit, and how you can take that forward into other areas of your life. Literally, they can transform your life in many aspects, many ways. And I, I got to imagine coming out of something like that, you say to yourself, what can't I accomplish? Like it, it, I would assume it almost frees you to some degree. Like I, I survived this. Now what am I going to tackle? And, you know, it's interesting as you say that because a couple of things, you know, uh, people, somebody asked me the other day, you know, are you ever afraid? I go, I'm afraid all the time. I was just, yeah, I said, I'm afraid all the time. I have fear all the time. But I have learned, as other people have, how to use that fear, how to recognize, oh, fear is not something that takes away from me. Fear is a sign to me that I'm pushing myself. It's a sign that I'm trying to get better. It's a sign for all of that. And I have to work with that fear. I have to use that fear as energy source. So it's never, I'm afraid a lot, but it's what I do with that fear that is the most helpful for me. And as I have looked at, you know, I try and talk to people, I always say, I don't have the answers, but I have really good questions. (laughs) So when I'm talking to people about what's going on with them, I ask them. Tell me your story. Give me an idea. Give me an example of something you went through and moved through. How did you do that? Why did you do that? And you start seeing in them, you, they start to uncover like, wow, look at what I did. And I said, see, I have taught you nothing. All I've done is help you unearth to discover the strength in you. Now take that. Take that and use that in this arena and how we're with what we're dealing with today and all of that. So it's really so gratifying to see people recognize that in themselves. But that comes from pushing them and asking them, not telling them what you can't do, but say, I bet you've done a lot of cool stuff. Tell me a story about that. That's awesome. Hey, let me go back to one thing, because you talk about fear and you do encounter fear still today. And from what I understand, what happened was never diagnosed. Like they don't know exactly what happened to you. And so I guess one question I would have is, do you ever worry that it could happen again? I don't now. It's been, you know, 30 years. So I don't think about it now. Initially I did. I remember um, going to talk to this doctor at Stanford, um, Roger Winkle. He's the, you know, the guru of electrophysiology, things in the heart. And so 
you know, I had a ton of tests done, obviously, and a lot of examinations and everything. And so I went to him because nobody could really identify what happened. So he said to me, okay, first of all, I have to tell you, you are the luckiest person I've ever seen. I have never seen anybody who has much CPR as you did who's actually alive and sitting up and talking to me. That's amazing. Secondly, I don't think unless somebody was in your heart at that moment, we will ever figure out what happened to you, but your life has changed forever. Your life will never be the same, and you get to make choices about how to live that life, which is amazing. Nobody ever said that to me. And then I said to him, well, what are my chances of this happening again? And he said, I don't know, I don't know, maybe 5% or whatever. So I was sharing that with some friends. And they said, I said, I have a 5% chance that this could happen again. And one of my friends said, Joyce, you had a 5% chance of stepping off the curb and getting hit by a bus. And I said, <laughs> when you've been hit by that bus, you think about it way more. So at that, you know, I, again, when he said to me, and you have decisions to make about how to live your life, once he said that, I became less anxious about, I got to run, I got to run, I got to do this, I got to do that. And I said, okay, I'll do this in a very constructed, safe manner. I will re-enter life. But it was his giving me, you decide how to do that. And that was the freedom that I needed to be able to say, all right, I won't be so bullheaded about this. I will go at this in a very safe way. That is a game changer. That's awesome. Uh, that's that's great. And again, words matter. Like you remember those words today as vividly as they did as you did when they were spoken, and and they had a profound effect on you. And and so I want I want to speak to what came after because after this, you decided that you were going to do as much as you could to cognitively regain where you were. And for you, that was going back to school. And then that led into really a study of other people that have gone through, you know, trauma. And so tell us a little bit about how that all came about. Yeah. So I was, you know, getting traction about the physical and spiritual things that was very important to me. But I decided if I really want to get my mind back, I know I'll go back to school. And I live close to Sacramento State University, and I know they had a master's program in nursing. So I went back and I applied and got into the master's program at Sacramento State. And kind of an incredible story is I went to the front office of the School of Nursing, and I said to the secretary there, "Um, hi, my name is Joyce Michael Flynn. I've had this event. I'm going to try and go back to school. I don't know how well I'll do. And um, as I was saying that, the division, the chair of the division of nursing just walked by and she looked at me and she said, who are you? And I told her, she goes, what happened? I told her, she goes, I was there that day. So Dr. Robin Nelson, the chair of the school of nursing, had been at the event. She had a daughter on another swim team. And so she was there and knew all about it. And so she brought me into her office and was very helpful. Other things that I did to regain my thought and everything was just, you know, just going back to school. That was helpful. But I did the specific formal master's program. And I looked at people who survived death events. And I studied 
had they gone through similar issues that I had gone through and won a nice little award for my study and got my master's on that. And then as life was going on with me, I just would see patients as a nurse practitioner or I'd read a book or see a movie about people who had gone through horrific situations. And not only did they survive, but they actually thrived. And not in spite of what happened, but as a direct result. And I was fascinated about that aspect of human behavior. So I thought, well, I want to study that. I might as well attach a degree to it. So I went back to get my doctorate, and that's what I studied. Extreme examples of trauma and people's um, overcoming and not only looking at why they chose to do that, but more importantly, how they accomplished that feat. Have you spoken to somebody that has had as significant a life-threatening trauma as you? I don't think I've talked to anybody who had specifically the extended CPR, but I've talked to people who have had traumatic events like motor vehicle accidents and that kind of physical trauma and how to come back from that. But I also, you know, talked to just so many people, you know, talked to a lot of veterans. I've talked to, you know, people who have been through pretty, you know, spinal cord injuries and, you know, really significant life-changing things. Um, I don't know if I've actually talked to somebody who had, like I said, the extended CPR, but definitely people at a level of that influential traumatic experience that was pretty overwhelming to all their Senses, yeah. At what point did you start to notice that there was a pattern? Because you, you speak about that. You speak about the consistency of the trauma event and then what happens after the trauma. And then that's led to Metahab. And so, you know, maybe you can walk us through those connections that you made and then how Metahab came about. So what I did when I went back to get my doctorate was my uh, dissertation uh, my uh, doctoral research, my dissertation was on, uh, I had already identified the word meta-hab. So meta, meaning going above and beyond, habilitation has to do with restoration, getting to baseline. So meta-hab, going above and beyond, surpassing baseline. And so I looked at, I interviewed six people who I had identified as going through significant trauma, like I said, spinal cord injuries, cancer. Um, I, I, I interviewed a gentleman who had been through multiple concentration camps in Nazi Germany. Um, just really significant alcohol and addiction, some pretty significant traumas. And so I listened to their stories. I took their stories. And my dissertation chair, Dr. Dean Elias, was very insightful. And he said, um, I said, I want to know why these people did this. And he said, well, you kind of want to know why, but you really want to know how. So I went, I said, give me some information on how you grew up, your background, what the situation was, and how you moved forward or what your life's like. So as I listened to these stories and over and over again, I went, you know, I actually really see it system here. There's a pattern. They just didn't do things in a haphazard way. I hear over and over, this started this way, and then they went to this. And so 
a colleague of mine said, I think there are stages to this. And I said, yep, that's it. There are stages. So as I went back to the research, I identified specifically six stages of MetaHab. And basically, the six stages are, there's the acute stage when everything falls apart and the trauma occurs, and that can be an emotional trauma, that could be COVID-19 trauma, that's all the trauma just happens. Stage two is what I call turning point, where people have made a conscious decision to move for, I don't know how I'm going to do this, I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm going to move forward. And once they make the decision to move forward, stage three involves treatment, complementary and traditional treatments, all sorts of things people choose to put into their life to help them move forward. Then stage four is what I call adaptation and adjustment. So they go through so many treatment modalities and so many things they're doing, they kind of take a deep breath. They start to think about what is the meaning of this. They adapt and adjust to life now, not forever, but for now because they need to take a rest. Stage five is once they move through that, they get back into life. Some way, somehow, something they move into some formalized life experience, and then stage six is metahap. That's taking on the future. That's when they say, you know what? I didn't like what happened to me. I would not choose this again, but in a really weird way, I've learned so much about myself and life, and I just see things differently, and I'm going to start this, or I'm going to do that, or I'm going to take this on. And it's really amazing. I did write a book called Turning Tragedy into Triumph that profiles each of these stories and these six stages. And once I wrote the book, I sent it to some people to read and tell me what they thought. And they said, okay, we like it, but we want two things. We want to see pictures and we want to know where these people are now. So the time frame from my dissertation to the book was two years. So I was able to go back to each of the six people I interviewed and find out where they are now. And one of the things I just love about research is there's just so many things that incidentally bubble up. And one of the things I really noticed about each of these six people is when I would talk to them, they never identified themselves with what happened to them, the trauma. They completely identified themselves with where they are now and what they're doing. So they never went back to, oh, yes, I had this. And now, you know, they'd say, oh, I'm doing this now. And did I tell you I'm doing this now? And did I tell you I'm doing that? And it's sort of like the trauma is not part of what they are focused on now. And that's even people will say to me now, why are you into this? And I said, well, you know, I died I, 30 years ago. I died. I had 22 minutes of CPR. I came back. I did, I did. It's almost like that is what got it going. But my focus is on the here and now. And that's post-traumatic growth. That's metahap. That's great. I just keep thinking that for some of these people, and maybe even including yourself, the trauma of the event, why me, why me, 
It happened to me. Like, I remember you saying there's a point where, like, you, you, I don't know if I can do this. You, you weren't sure if you even wanted to be here anymore. And, like, it just completely upends your life. But then now, 30 years later, you look back on it. You look at what good has come from this. Do you now view this as almost a blessing in disguise? Oh, it is. It is. And it's hard for me to sometimes say that because, you know, I really come up against some people who have been through very horrific things. Really, you know, loss of people in their lives, traumatic loss of people. And so it's hard for me sometimes to use the word blessing. But I would say for me, it has been so intricate in terms of how I see the world how I see my purpose in the world, I, I, I just don't think I would have what I have now had that not happened to me. There's just no way. I, I, I just don't think I would appreciate life or have the relationship if I had not had that. So to me, I identified my trauma, you know, as a blessing to me. And it has really given me an ability to serve. To serve and and to help others, you know, which, so, you know, that's a great segue into uh, life today, life now, MetaHab now. So what is your goal? What are you doing currently? Because you do serve people. You're, you're serving us. You're serving our audience. The, the research that you've done, the books that you've written, you know, the website and the business that you created. So, so what is life like for you now? And what is the goal with MetaHab? So the goal that I have first and foremost is for people like you to help me get the word out and to inspire an awareness of people's inner strength and ability and in the midst of some very tough times to focus on what it is you can do, the belief in yourself and your family, to model the strength, grit, and to know you got this. The second thing I can, you know, is, again, what I can do to be of service. I'm scheduled to go give blood. I mean, whatever I can do to help with that. I do a lot of work with other organizations and people to, again, introduce this system of MetaHab to give them a way to go with it. So, again, it's not the only way to achieve post-traumatic growth, but it is an opportunity to do that. I have created, obviously, I've written a book. I have my own podcast called Sliver of Hope, Stories of Survival and Growth, that people can listen to and gain some insight as well as some motivation to move forward. I have workbooks and journals for wellness to help move people in a mental, emotional way forward. And um, again, with my coursework and the things I do through Sac State, to basically train a new um, generation of people working with people who have experienced trauma to integrate the notion of post-traumatic growth and meta-hab and how to move forward in their existing practice. That is awesome. I love all of that. I think that that's an incredible uh, goal that you have. One question that I had when you were describing that is, let's say 
I'm going, I, I just had a trauma event. Like you now have a roadmap of what that trauma event can lead to if the work is done. I, I, I hear you very clear when you keep saying time. I know that time is an incredibly important part of this whole process, that nothing is going to happen quickly or overnight. But when should somebody you know, refer me to what you're doing with Metahab post the trauma event? Right away. Right, right away. away. I tell people. So on my website, you talked about metahab, M-E-T-A-H-A-D.com, an easier way to get to my website. So my name is Joyce Michael Flynn. So you can go to D-R-J-M-F. So Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn, D-R-J-M-F. You go to my website. You'll be able to pick up my podcast. Also, if you go to my store, I have and workbooks and things that will completely get you into the realm of, okay, this is where I'm at. This is what I got to do. And the one of the big things that we start doing when I'm working with people immediately is to help them recognize the stage they're at, not to judge it, but to recognize this is a stage. You're going through things that we expect. Here's what you can do to successfully start to gain some traction. And you said gain some wins and move through that. One of the biggest things in the work that I do is I have a list of what I call characteristics and facilitating conditions. And I have people check those off for themselves. So you start just moving your mind into your strengths, your abilities, and what you can do. And my book and my workbooks give a complete roadmap to how to do that. Great. Awesome. And we'll make sure that uh, we absolutely plug all of that in our post of this particular podcast. But I I want to uh, transition and now and just speak to the current environment. We're in the midst of a pandemic. We've got the COVID-19 virus out there in society. We're at, in a situation where we're stay at home. I'm, I'm just imagining that there's a lot of people that are feeling anxious. I feel like there's a lot of people that are worried about money and finances. Um, there could be kids that school was a safe place for them. Now they're at home and maybe home isn't as safe for them. I mean, I, all of this stuff kind of swirls around in my head. So relative to your research and what you're doing with Metahab, how does that apply to the current environment? So the work that I've done, I did a special edition of COVID podcast myself, and I, I have three, and I'm still I'm waiting to do the third one. But the first one is the acute phase. So having people recognize it really is the awareness that a you're not alone, you're not a crazy person when you're kind of losing it as you're going through this immediate acute trauma experience, and you're panicking and everything, and I go, okay, everybody take a deep breath. I expect you to do this, but here's the good news. You must always, and you can always, have some control over your situation, and you must take that control. And I have to tell you, the other day, I spent a little bit too much time watching the news, and I felt myself, I got so anxious and so fearful. I went, okay, I got to stop doing this. I got to stop doing this and go back to looking at 
like the CDC, Center of Disease Control website, and watching 15 to 30 minutes of news a day and stopping that. So they can do that. The second thing is to adapt and adjust. So in your situation, how can you adapt and adjust life to fit what you what's going on in your current living environment? Always focus again on what it is you can do. And always make sure that part of that is you can get out of doors, especially weather permitting, you can get out of doors and you have to get away from the TV screen and get out of doors and move. And then look at what is this providing you in terms of opportunities to engage each other in a positive, meaningful, strength-based way. And one of the things that is so important, I really want to speak to parents and caregivers. Please work closely. You need to take care of yourself. You need to model the way for your children. You need to model how to move through this productively with your children and also show them, yes, you're going to lose it. Yes, you're going to be upset. Yes, you're going to go through that. But you don't stay there. You then start to recognize, all right, I need to get busy doing something. And what is it you can do? Helping children with homework, going out for a walk, reading a good book, calling a friend to help you get all those kinds of things. Because we are going to move past this. There is no question about that. Time frame, nobody's sure. And that's what's really tough, is there's not a date when this is going to be over. However, it is going to be over. And I think our biggest challenge, the biggest challenge we are facing, is moving back into life in a productive, positive manner. Because I think there's just going to be leftover some anxiety and stress as we move back into life that we need to address on a personal level. And then also, you know, we can help on a professional level as we move back into that life. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And, uh, you know, I love what you're saying. Like I was reminded when you were saying, like, if you're a caregiver, you're talking about your children, you're talking about somebody that maybe is a, an elder person that you're caring for. I'm reminded of what they tell you when you are in an airplane. You know, put the mask on you first. You know, in other words, you get you got to you got to control yourself, then, you know, help with your kill children, help with your elder care, etc. But like be that be that example. You know, Jen and I were high school sweethearts. We've been together for 26 years. We have four boys. Our oldest is 24. Our youngest is uh, 13. And so we've got two at home, 15 and 13 now. And uh, we're always checking with in with them, seeing how they're doing, et cetera. But we also are, are intimately aware that they are looking to us right now. This is history. This is, this is a formative time. This is an extreme challenge for not only them but for us. And so they're going to be paying attention to how we weather that. They're going to be paying attention to how we handle it and what we do. And that's one of the reasons why we created the podcast was we didn't want to do the whole Netflix and chill thing for a month or two months. We wanted to be of service. We wanted to, to, to get a word out. And so I think that they're seeing what we're doing now by kind of engaging in this podcast, interviewing people, hearing the stories, 
And I think we're modeling a really good example for them to follow should this happen to them at some point in their life or should something similar or in the same vein occur, occur that they're going to have an example. They're going to remember back to how mom and dad did it. Okay, let's all be honest. This may not exactly happen to them, but stuff, stuff is going to happen. Yes. And this is, it is what we call stress resilience. This is hitting upon our resilience immune system. It will never engage itself unless it's hit upon. COVID-19, same thing with your immune system. How do you gain immunity from it? Well, you either get a vaccine that gives you some part of that that stresses your immune system to recognize what it is and say, oh, wait a second, this is new. Oh, okay, I got this. I know I'll develop this antivirus myself to it, or you have been exposed to it and your immune system is engaged. Your immune system isn't going to sit around and just go, oh, I know you need some help with COVID-19. <laughs> no, it has to be. Same thing with our stress, our resilience, our grit, our capacity for growth. It has to be engaged in order to uh, facilitate the capacity, to engage the capacity that we have to grow. And so this is a profound opportunity for us to model this as leaders. Leaders, really good leaders, are the most optimistic people in the room. Really good leaders take care of themselves so they can engage people in that optimism and keep things going. And so as parents, caregivers, professionals, we must do that. And that includes, you know, really, I told this story to Jeff, I <clears throat> love this, but I've, I have over 140 students that I'm working with, right? I have three courses that I throw completely online. So I got all this stuff going on, and I've got children, and I've got grandchildren, and I had a new baby grandchild born a month ago and all this. And one of, you know, I, I just got, I'm in the process of getting things done. And one of my students said to me, hey, Dr. Michael Flynn, you're always worried about us. How are you doing? And it just hit me. I was like, and I got emotional. I was so, oh my gosh, I have not been thinking about that. I've been so consumed with other people. And it made me think, if you're telling people to do this, you better do this yourself. So focus on, again, what I better take care of myself, too, so that I can service these students and my family and my community, that type of thing. So, please. No, I, I agree with you, and I think your points about, you know, the physicality, getting outside, getting some sun, getting some vitamin D, you know, getting vitamin oh, yeah. C, getting rest, getting water, you know, I think that those, you know, make sure that, that you're, you're hydrated, but you know, in, in addition, I think, you know, I'm going to, uh, my background is I, I've American Indian. And so the Cherokee parable about the two wolves, you know, on your, on your, on your shoulders, basically one is, one is good. One is bad. One is, one is, um, you know, like death and destruction. The other one is life and light, etc. And so, you know, the chief is telling his grandson about the two wolves fighting on your, on your back. And the, the son says, which one wins? And the, chief says, well, whichever one you feed. And so if you're feeding fear, if you're, you know, to me, fear is um, the opposite of faith. You know, you've got, you fear requires you to believe in something that's negative in an outcome. 
And faith requires you to believe in something that's positive as an outcome. And I think where you're spending your time, like both are uncertain. We can't know for sure on either side, fear or faith, you know, but that's why we get to choose. We get to choose where we're going to focus our attention. And I, and I loved what you said about uh, canceled, not canceled, you know, just kind of reminding people of what is available right now at this time, things that could uplift you, things that could soothe your spirit, things that could, you know, give you hope. I really, I can't underscore enough what you just said. I just had a conversation with my son about this, and he said, you know, I just remember, and see, this is the beauty of generations teaching you resilience. He said, I just remember, Grandpa, saying, when you get worried or you get upset, just get busy getting busy. (laughs) get busy getting engaged. And he said, I just remember Grandpa telling me that. And that's the same thing I talk about. There's no question. I get anxious. I get scared. But I just go, what is the purpose of this? How can I move past this? I know. Start doing something. So I can correct student papers. I can uh, call a friend. I can work on the book, I, another book that I'm writing. I can get into that. And that takes me out of that focus. As you said, I'm not feeding the fear. I am using that to motivate me to get busy, getting busy. And I think, I think the getting busy, getting busy if applied in the right way. So I think right now, like this, this is a service project for Jen and I, like, I mean, there's no financial benefit to it. We, you know, we're not, we don't have any angles. We're just trying to give back. What we did not anticipate was how hope filled we would become doing these interviews. What we did not expect was how much we would forget about our own worries, our own fear, talking to other people. And so I think when you when you service other people, when you come alongside them, when you ask them how they're doing, when their situation is, um, you know, a huge trial for them, like it gives you context. You, it, you're sitting here going, what am I worried about? Like the reality of it is, is I'm safe. I'm happy. I'm okay right now. I got all my kids. Like why, why stress? And so I think the unintended or unknown major positive benefit that we've gotten out of being of service, trying to come alongside others and give, and give them hope, was how much hope-filled we became in the process. Oh, I, I thank you. That is such a great insight. That is so perfect. Because once I, I just seen this with other people and myself included is, when I have been in pain or when I have, you know, and something is distracting me, all of a sudden I'm feeling this pain, but somebody calls and says, hey, I, I, I need your help. Could you go get this or do that? I'll go, sure. And then all of a sudden, as I'm being of service or doing something, I recognize, oh my gosh, I'm not feeling that pain. I, I, I went through it a whole hour not feeling that pain. So that is a wonderful insight. Well, thank you very much. And I think as we, as we close out our session, um, I would just ask, you know, like, what would you, 
what specifically words of encouragement could you share to somebody that right now is feeling anxious and worried, concerned? Maybe their husband or wife lost the job. Maybe they got reduced hours. Maybe they're wondering how they're going to pay their mortgage, or maybe they're worried about a loved one. Like what, what would you say right now to come alongside and encourage them? So first of all, I just want to say that, yes, this has affected so many people in so many ways. My encouragement to you is to say, please recognize that you got this. You can move through this. Focus on solutions. Focus on what it is that you can do. Ask for, ask for, and accept help that is being given. So if there's financial help that's being given, take it. Do it. Whatever you have to do to continue your survival at this time, that's the focus. You will understand later on what this all meant, and you will provide some meaning to this. But for right now, focus on what you can control. Keep a sliver of hope in your life that this is going to get better, and you are going to come out the other side of this. And ask and accept help and stay away from the negative. Stay away from the negative. It's not helping you. It's just bringing you down. So surround yourself with people, places, things, messages that uplift you and give you strength. Well said. Thank you so much. You've been an awesome guest. I've been fascinated with what you shared today. You know, I just uh, applaud the work that you're doing. You are making a difference. And um, I, I just can't thank you enough for coming alongside us today and, and joining our podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your story. I'm sitting over here just like enthralled in this story. And I just, I believe in miracles and I believe you are a walking miracle. And it's just, thank you so much for sharing. Oh, no, it, it is my distinct honor and pleasure to do that. So God bless you for doing what you're doing because that uh, hope is where it's at. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) We, we agree with that. Thank you so much. All right. If you need anything else, let me know. So Jen, how did you feel about that interview? That was amazing. It was incredible. I say it's incredible a lot, but that was really incredible. Yeah, I feel like I've lost the amount of words that I need to have to properly emphasize how amazing sometimes yeah. these interviews are. And I just think what she went through and what she overcame, but then more importantly, what she's doing with her life right now to serve others, that blew me away. Yeah, and just the fact that she's like physically able to. Yeah. You know, after 22 minutes, I cannot wrap that around my little brain here. Yeah, most people, I think, have brain damage or yeah. cognitive loss that's significant. Like, she's sharp. She's mm-hmm. smart. She went and actually did a lot more. And even her acknowledgement that she thinks that she's further than she would have been had the accident not yeah. happened. Doing more. Her purpose Mm-hmm. has been shown to her more through this accident. I think that's amazing. Well, she even continued to go get her doctorate. You know, like, yeah, it's just incredible to me. Like, blown away. Well, I think she's the definition of hope. And as we close out the show, I just have one thing I want to share with you. I want. I, I have a little quote I'd like to share. It's a, it's a quote from a person that I think is very appropriate given today's interview. Okay. 
as you go about your day, I just want to leave you with this one last remaining thought. If you can only carry one thing throughout your entire life, let it be hope. Let it be hope that better things are always ahead. Let it be hope that you can get through even the toughest of times. Let it be hope that you are stronger than any challenge that comes your way. Let it be hope that you are exactly where you are meant to be right now and that you're on the path to where you are meant to be because during these times, hope will be the very thing that carries you through. That's a quote by Nikki Banas. I love that. I love that too. And I think honestly, you just need a little sliver of hope. Yes. And Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn gave us that sliver of yes, hope. Yes, she did. Today. And I can't thank her enough for that. Hey, Sean, same time, same place tomorrow. Absolutely. See you there.